If you have your Bibles, won't you grab it with me and find yourself in the Gospel of John one more time as we culminate here, we climax the, the prologue of John chapter 1. I don't know if anyone here has ever been to the Philippines. I have not, but, you know, you see these uh, shows, uh, that, that, these travel shows and, and um, different parts of the world. It's always fascinating to me. And in Manila, in the Philippines, there is a garbage dump that is home to tens of thousands of people. Can you imagine that? Living in a garbage dump the outskirts of town where they dump the refuse, the waste, the trash. Trucks come in and dump it out. People scavenge for food and supplies. Can you imagine being born, raised, and some people that are there even die among that trash heap without ever going anywhere else? Can you imagine that? An existence where your home is a shack made up of stuff that people threw away. Imagine living in a world where your existence is your children scavenging for food to try to scrounge up a meal for the family to eat. Where disease, discomfort, and suffering are your way of life. Imagine. But also living in that garbage heap are missionaries who have chosen to leave their countries to go to this place and communicate the love of Jesus Christ to a people that would otherwise never hear it. Isn't that amazing? I find that incredible. As I, was, as I was reading stories of different people in the Philippines, Manila, and a couple of other spots in this very circumstance, it's amazing to think that they would leave the comforts of home, the reality and safety, the, the healthcare system, and all everything that you could imagine, creature comfort, to go live in a dump heap. But more amazing still, is the journey of our Savior, can someone say amen, who left heaven and came to earth. The Son of God who knew what he was doing, who knew where he was going and what was going to be required of him, the sacrifice that he would need to make. He knew all of these things, yet he journeyed from heaven to earth to save the human race. Somebody say amen. John describes it like this in our text this morning. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of, of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. This verse is the climax of John's prologue. As John completes his thoughts on the introduction of who Jesus is by proclaiming that he is in his very essence human and that he is also in his essence deity, Jesus Christ, here, the message of Christmas is both. In John 1 verse 14, he tells us what the re really happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus showed up on the scene and what that all means for us today. We've been looking at this first chapter of John for the last couple of weeks and realizing who he was eternally God. 
How he is there, the one who, who has had everything, and in him and through him, everything has their being. We've been looking at how we can draw hope and strength from the reality of what's found here in John chapter 1. We looked at how John the Baptist, while John is introducing, John the Apostle is introducing John the Baptist, and talking about this hope that showed up on the scene, who was from the beginning, how we are to witness and bring that out, especially at Christmas time. Last week, we talked about... How how this light that has come and shone in the darkness is a light that must be received and believed upon. There is hope if we just choose to receive and believe in him, we can experience a new reality at Christmas time. We can share these incredible truths. And today, I want us to look at this climax of John as he ties everything back together and he wraps up the introduction of his gospel. Having written it down the road, Matthew Mark, Luke, they have all written from different perspectives and they started in different places. John shows up, says most of that's been said. What's been veiled and hidden within their gospels, that's there. You can read in between the lines about who Jesus is. I'm starting off my gospel saying what was hidden is right here in front of you. He was God. He is God. And what does this mean? So and as he wraps up verse 14 here, I want us to take a look at four great truths, four pillars in which we can rest on. If the light came into the darkness, the darkness could not overcome it. It showed up to those who were his very own and they did not receive him. And we have learned all of these incredible truths. What can we draw if Jesus is the light of the world? God in the flesh, what can we rest our hope on as we contemplate his incredible love, his light, his grace, his being? So I want us to take a look at four truths. The truth of relatability, presence, revelation, and invitation. So let's explore these. Father, I thank you for your word, and I pray that you would just speak hope inside of us this morning. Help us to prepare our hearts for your arrival, God. Yes, you've come, but you, and you want to come each and every day. You want, Lord God, to be in our midst, making yourself known in our lives every day. Help us to receive you well in your precious name. Amen. First thing that I want us to focus on this morning out of John chapter 1, verse 14, is that you may rest on the relatability among us. Jesus Christ became human. John states this, and the word became flesh. Notice the link between verse 1 that we read just a few weeks ago. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word that always was now became a temporal event at a point in history. Furthermore, the word that was God now came into being in the flesh. That is, he exists as a human being. See, it's said that Jesus is God, and that is true. It is true, and it's awesome. It's incredible, but equally incredible. Or sometimes even more so if you really stop and think about this. It's incredible that we can say that God became Jesus of Nazareth. See, if he showed up today for the very first time 
And he came into the context of Metro West. You could have said, maybe Jesus is not the popular name like it used to be in his time. Maybe you could have said, well, that's Bob from Framingham. God became Bob in Framingham. God became Jesus of Nazareth. All of his deity now encapsulated within human flesh. That which was timeless, boundless, infinite, eternal, becomes someone who is temporal. And in some ways, finite. When he stepped out, Jesus Christ became the visible expression of the invisible God. He became a visual aid. He was God expressing himself in a language that you and I can understand. Someone say amen. He wore a suit of flesh. Theologians refer to that concept, that mind-boggling concept, as the incarnation. Plenty of debates over church history has been had over this word. What does it truly mean? How can we wrap our finite minds around it? Well, some throughout church history have claimed, well, you know what? He, he only looked like a human being. Some have said throughout time that, uh, well, you know what? He had the body of a man, but he did not have the soul of a human. Others have said completely something else. They said, you know, Jesus was two people living within one body. Sort of like half God, half man. And then the unbelievers, they say, you know what, hogwash, all of it. I don't believe any of it. You know what, I don't even think he was just a man like everybody else. He had a sin nature just like the next guy. Yet the reality is none of that is true. And that is the message of Christmas that we can celebrate and say, amen. None of these things are true. When Jesus stepped out of eternity, the infinite God took on the form of a tiny unborn baby boy. He added humanity. And here's the kicker. He did not subtract deity. He added humanity, not at the expense of his deity. He added it and he retained it. He added it and he was both. He was fully God and fully man. You could say he was the God man. Meditate on that with me for a second. Like sometimes we say these things, but can we truly just put ourselves in the place to meditate on what that means? Everything, the boundlessness and, and, and eternality of God, the, the, the infinite qualities of God, bound within a human suit of flesh. The love of God now beat in a human heart. The almightiness of God now moved on a human arm. Think about a person arm wrestling. The almightiness of God moved on a human arm. The wisdom of God spoke in human lips. The incredible mercy of God reached forth in human hands. Jesus was God wrapped in human flesh. Amen. See, one night a little girl was having trouble during a thunderstorm. And so her father attempted to calm her down by giving her an affirmation. And he was affirming her with this thought saying, Honey, God loves you and he will take care of you. God loves you and he will take care of you. And so eventually, here's the deal that happened though. Yet every time the lightning bolt 
went off or the, a clap of thunder was heard. This little girl would run scurrying to her dad, wanting some affirmation. And he would say the same thing again and again. Eventually, after a few cycles of this, the little girl just looked at her dad and simply replied, Daddy, I know that God loves me, but I just need somebody with skin on. Daddy, I know he loves me, but right now I just need someone with skin on. When Jesus stepped out of heaven, he was God with skin on. He became God in the human flesh. God with skin on. And you can rest on that relatability. That he put on something that you can relate to, connect with, understand. You can reach out to, hold, and grasp. You can understand him for who he is now, not this concept up there, immaterial and abstract. John said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Secondly, you can rest on the presence that is among us. See, Jesus lived among his people. That is good news. Notice how the phrase in John 1.14, it reveals the residence of God on earth, where he dwelt. And dwelt among us is what John said. The word dwelt is the word skeno. Skeno. And that's the verb form of the word skene. Skene is tent. Skeno literally means to set up a tent. This is a word picture that goes back to the tabernacle in the Old Testament. See, the tabernacle was the place that often was referred to as the tent of what? Meeting. The tent of meeting. It was the place in which God had spoken to Moses and said, I will abide my presence. I will concentrate my presence in the holy of holies within the tent of meeting. You will come to this place and you will commune with me. And only a select few could go and enter into that space and connect with God. It was the meeting place between God and man. And similarly, when Jesus stepped out of heaven and he came to earth, he became the place where we get to meet the presence of God. The NLT articulates verse 14 this way. So the word became human and made his home among us. For 33 years, Jesus became the residence of God. For 33 years, God moved in, lived, tabernacled among us. He lived as our neighbor. And why did he do that? See, setting a tent among us, if you use the, the Greek word skeno, implies that God wants to be close. He wants to be nearby. He wants to be within earshot. He wants to have contact and interaction. He wants to be on a first name basis with us. Notice that the word picture is not him building a mansion or building a castle. Why? Because those two concepts, if you think of that image of a moated castle or a gated mansion, what do they say to you? Hey, stay out. I've got everything I need within the confines of this space. I'm all set right here. I've got what I need. I've got what I want. I do not want to be bothered by you people. Look at my fence. By the way, it's electrified. When he says, God became flesh and dwelt among us, 
it meant that he set up his tent. How many of you guys like to go camping? Anybody? Like really camping with a tent in the woods, bugs, no electricity, and all of that great stuff, right? Some of you guys do, some survivalists in this place, all right? Most of us, I don't know, it's pretty quiet in here. I'm assuming you guys are not that kind. You might want to go camping like this. Maybe you'll say, hey, I'm going to go camping in the backyard, you know? I'm going to go camping in the backyard of my brother's house or my sister's house or my friend's house. Can I come to your place? Hey, Pastor Joe, you got a beautiful, uh, you know, uh, lots of acres up in New York. Let's go camp at his place, right, and pitch a tent right outside. I'm not going to bother you. I'm just going to pitch a tent right here. I'm going to, you know, uh, set up my tent in this space in your backyard. Now, if I do that, think about this. If I put a tent in someone's backyard, then that probably means that at some point in time, I'm going to end up chit-chatting with the person I've put a tent in their yard. I might see their kids playing in the backyard, and then I might have a conversation with that kid or even start running around and playing with the child. I Maybe if I put a tent in your backyard, I might go into your house and say, hey, Lillian, can I just uh, you know, uh, use the restroom? Stephanie, can I, can I uh, cook this in your, in your stove, for instance? Um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't have plumbing, so I need to take care of some things. Can I, can I step inside? Maybe I'll, if I put my tent in your backyard, I might actually end up sitting at your table and having a meal with you. See, the concept of him setting up his tent and dwelling among us, it's just this idea that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh through the Son Jesus, decided to take up his residence in our human backyard so that by being present, he may have lots of dealings and interactions and connections and relationship with all of us. He dwelt among us. We can relate to him. We can rest on the presence of him being here as he came in John chapter 1, verse 14, but also look at how uh, we can rest on the revelation that is among us. Jesus revealed his glory. Next, John speaks about manifesting God's glory. He says this, And we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father. The message paraphrased by Eugene Peterson, he says it this way, We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like Father, like Son. When John writes, we have seen, he uses the word that is meant for the word gaze, to look intently upon, to study as in, in a laboratory. That word is not just like, oh, yeah, okay. Oh, like to fix our eyes on, to study it intricately and observe all the details and the nuances and try to find new things within it and, and really give it the attention that it deserves. That's the word that he uses here when he says, we have seen him. The word glory refers to the visible manifestation of God's presence and power. It became clear here that as John is speaking this, it carries this idea of the weight and the importance of what the person is witnessing. When Jesus walked on earth, 
people could see, they could gaze upon, they could look squarely in the face. They could see God's presence and power and glory shining through Jesus Christ. That's what they saw. When Jesus turned the water into wine, for instance, in Cana, John chapter 2, John tells us that he manifested, that is revealed, his glory and his disciples believed they put their faith in him. Jesus was certainly not invisible, nor was he obscure, right? People caught wind and paid attention. Folks clamored around him. There was a crowd that gathered on multiple occasions. There was Lots of hubbub and words and actions and activity happening around him. Because when you looked at Jesus, he intended it to be that way. When you looked upon him, you could see the glory of the Father. He wanted to attract people unto himself. He wanted them to gaze upon him. Why? Because by doing so, they would get to see the Father. When you come to experience Jesus Christ, you come to experience God. In Jesus we see the Father. We talked about this a couple weeks back in more detail, but I want you to understand he said that there, that we got to experience, we get to see that he was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. In him, we get to see the fullness of God. We rest on the relatability. We rest upon the incredible presence, we rest upon the revelation that he is revealing the will of God, the word of God, the, the power of God, the miracles of God. That's why when you see in John's gospel, there's these incredible signs. He talks about these incredible uh, miracles that happened, all of them revealing the power and glory of God. We also see here in verse 14 that we get to rest on an invitation that is among us. Jesus invites us to himself. Look at these final uh, words in the verse. It ends with this powerful invitation for all of us as we contemplate here on Christmas, um, the eaves of Christmas. It tells us that Jesus came to earth full of grace and full of truth. The message, paraphrased once again, says this, generous inside and out true from start to finish. He showed up, generous, inside and out, and true from start to finish. When Jesus arrived, he offered grace and he offered truth. Have you thought about that word? That's the word that we want when we know we did something wrong, right? You know that you're not in the right. You're not in the clear. There is something that is against you and you want to be treated as if it did not happen and as if you could try again and start fresh. Grace. Grace is an irresistible compulsion to give men more than they deserve or could ever earn and it springs spontaneously. That's the beauty. From the endless generosity of God. Someone say amen. It springs from his endless generosity. It is boundless. It is endless. It is matchless. It is infinite. It continues on and on and on. Generous inside and out, as the message says. Truth, on the other hand, has roots 
in a divine resolve to be consistent. God has decided to be consistent. Don't you love it when you can go to McDonald's and you can order a number one Big Mac in Massachusetts or somewhere in Italy or Japan or it does not matter. You order the same thing and you get the same thing and it tastes exactly the same. It's reliable. That's great. It's a sandwich and it's probably going to kill you because it's terrible. But... When it comes to God, how great is it that he has made a, design, a divine resolve within himself? I will be the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. I will not change. When you show up to me today, you can expect me to be forever the same. I love you and I care for you. I will always be for you. Truth has its roots in a divine resolve to be consistent, predictable, and thus trustworthy with his dealings with man. Thank you, Lord, that you meet me in the same way and you bless me in the same way. What you had and you were able to do before, you continue to be able to do now. I thank you, God. Grace without truth. He says, he has come full of grace and full of truth. Stop and think about the reality of why that's important. Because grace without truth is easily seen as sentimentality. He's just being sentimental. Oh, I love you. I love you. You could do no wrong. And just a little sentimentality with God. While truth without grace can appear to be a stubborn rigidity. If he has no grace, he's just a taskmaster. There is no, no, no grace. There is no opportunity for failure. There's no opportunity for him to, to love us into growing up and doing well and improving and getting better. There is no flexibility. Grace without truth would be deceitful and truth without grace would be condemning. And so he shows up with both. I've got both. I've got both. I've showed up with both. Jesus stepped on the scene with both. And because he was full of grace, he died for you and me while we were yet sinners. Because he was full of truth, he is able to pay for all of your sins and take care of all of your issues every single time, and it's over. Because he is the fullness of truth. He is complete. He can do everything completely. He stands right there as the good news for us because Jesus is full of grace, grace generous, grace endless. We can come to him as we are. Isn't that a beautiful thing? How many of you have met people and they have decided, I'm not going to follow Jesus and, and I don't know about this whole religion thing. I don't know about you know, aligning my life and changing my lifestyle and all this stuff, like this, this kookiness that you guys talk about with religion and, and Jesus, following Jesus. I don't, I, I'm, not, I'm not good enough yet. I need to clean myself. Eventually, I'll get there. Uh, let me just get some things right. Let me set some things apart. Let me like overcome certain things and hurdles and struggles and personality traits. And let me shift some things within my, my own habits. And then I'll come and check it out and understand it and maybe try it out. The reality, because Jesus is grace generous, because he is grace endless, we can come to him just as we are. We do not need to clean ourselves up first. We can come to him exactly the way we are because he is truthful, truth whole. Because he has all of that, you can come to him completely in confidence knowing that he will keep his promises. Somebody say amen. He will keep his promises. A full pardon means a complete pardon. 
It doesn't mean that he says, okay, you're okay for today, but oh man, you really went back to that thing again yesterday, today, you're going to do it again tomorrow, I'm sorry. When Jesus Christ came full of grace and full of truth, he came for all of you, your sins, past, present, and future, somebody say amen. All of it. A full pardon is a complete pardon. It's not a conditional pardon. He is going to give you a complete forgiveness because he is able to. What we need most for Christmas, like I've said to you over these last couple of weeks, is not the newest gadget. It's not the, the next vacation or the incredible gift that someone can wrap up and put under a tree. What we most need at Christmas time is grace and God's truth. And John tells us that we've had it. What we need is we need to find Jesus Christ who is relatable to us, who is present with us, who reveals the glory of God and who he is for us and who invites us into himself. What are the implications of all of this? What does this all mean for you and I as we approach Christmas and we're celebrating, especially this day, the finals of the World Cup where you could be there celebrating a game? What does this mean and impact us, the fact that Jesus came, that he stepped out, that he left heaven for earth, that he became God in a human suit of flesh. It has several implications. For instance, what does it mean? It means that Jesus Christ is real. Somebody say real. The word of truth in John chapter 1 verse 14 literally means that which is unconcealed, that which is open to view, that which is transparent. When Jesus became a man, he showed that God was not merely a principle, but that God was a person. God is a person, not a myth, but a man, not a concept, but a reality. God is the same thing. Man and God right here, abiding, existing. Not a figment of your imagination, not something you conjured up, but he is a living presence, an authentic, genuine person. Jesus was not an idea of God, not a picture of God, but God himself in human form. He is real. That's what it means. What does it mean for all of us? It means that Jesus Christ is here. How many of you guys love watching like these uh, um, world war or war movies and you see the incredible bravery of men and women and and the incredible exploits that they have to go through in times that are horrific and, and challenging and very deadly and drastic. There's, there's a, um, what is it? The, the Ridge, Ridge Top, what was that called? Uh, Hacksaw Ridge. That was one of the great movies based on true reality of a man who was a believer and wanted to do God's work, even in a very horrible, difficult situation. Well, there's a story of two young men who were on a battlefield in World War II. These guys baited to a foxhole and there's gunfire happening all around them. The enemy is shooting them down. And as they look before them, they see a horrific battlefield with people dead, strewn all across the field. Some are dead, others are dying. People are moaning and crying out. There's horrific screams and bullets are whizzing by. Everything is happening. And as they watch this terrible scene, they saw these medics, these two medics going back and forth, and they were going from one soldier to the next. They could identify them with the red crosses on their, on their uniforms. And these medics would go load up a man on the stretcher, and then they would make their way carefully throughout that horrific scene as bullets are whizzing right past them. And in that middle of all of that stuff, 
One of the guys says, where is God in all of this? Where is God in this craziness and chaotic place? The other man looks up at him and says, right there. There is God, right there. Looking at those medics. There is God. See, Jesus came from heaven to earth. He entered into the chaos of this world. It's not a pretty sight, church, is it? He didn't come to a place that was all eager and anticipating and making everything right, correcting all the wrongs, preparing so that he would feel at home and comfortable. Jesus stepped into a war zone. The war zone of sin and failure and immorality of violence and greed and lust and all of these things, the results of sin as it entered into the Garden of Eden, Jesus decided to step out of serenity and peace, the presence of the Father, to step into a horrific space. And when people look around at the chaos of this world, where is God? Right there in the person of Jesus Christ who came on through to save humanity. What does it mean as we contemplate John chapter 1, verse 14? It means that Jesus wants to be involved. He wants space in your life. Can someone say space? He wants to be the go-to person for you. How many of us, when there's an issue, we have somebody on speed dial? I got to tell my sister. I got to tell my brother. I got to call my mother. I got to call this person. That is my go-to. God wants to be your go-to person, and he wants to do that and fulfill that through the person of Jesus Christ. He doesn't want to be treated like a long-distance relative that you'll bump into every once in a while, once in a blue moon at a family reunion. He wants to be the person who has space and is involved, has connection and relationship in your life. That's what it means. Since he came down here, he took on flesh, he became touchable, he made himself accessible and approachable. He wants you to have a relationship with him. That's what it means. What does it mean that Jesus came in the flesh? It means that he identifies with our pain. Some of us just need to stop and think about that one point. You can go home from here and you will be full just right here. What does it mean that the word became flesh, that he set up his tent among us? It means that he relates to your pain. Take solace in the reality that Jesus Christ taking on flesh, he identifies, he understands, he has lived it, he has experienced it, he knows it, he identifies with your pain. The hurt of rejection, yes, he felt it. The pain of loneliness, yes, he tasted it. The grief of losing somebody, yes, he endured it. The reality of scars of emotional and mental and physical abuse, he suffered them. Jesus Christ can identify with your pain. By becoming man, he understood that, and he understands you. Sometimes we say, you know, like Zazu from Lion King, nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Y'all know that? Remember that part? I think that's actually from Monty Python, right? Nobody knows my sorrows. 
And we have this understanding or idea that we're going through something that is so difficult and deep, that is so unique and nuanced that nobody else can relate and understand to all the complexities of what's added up to my issue and my pain. The reality is that all of his, all of his being has stepped into all of our humanity. And he understood, and by his stripes, he, he took on stripes that we may be healed. He took on pain that we may be forgiven. He took on sorrows, and he knows it all. We can relate with him. What does it mean? It means that Jesus Christ offers grace. I invite the team to come on up, because I want you to have time to respond. And spend some time in just appreciating him for who he is. And what he's done. And what he will do. What does it mean that Jesus Christ came in the flesh and dwelt among us? That he revealed the glory of the Father like the Father, like the Son. Full of grace and truth. It means that that grace is offered to you. Jesus Christ offers grace. In other words, the one gift that we all need for all of eternity can be found in him. That what we need for all of eternity, not what we need for this year, for this month, what we need to get through until the end of the month and I get a new paycheck next month, what we need, not just for a temporary little bit of time, but what we need for all of eternity is found in Him. It's found in Jesus. That gift is the gift of salvation, the, the right to be reconciled. What we talked about the other day when we say that if God, God can't possibly care for me, well, he does because he not only came, but he gave you the opportunity to become a child of God. He cares intimately and he gives you that grace. He's offering it to you like we talked about last week. We must just receive it and believe in him. The one present that you cannot live without. Maybe you feel you can live without it for a moment or a season. That may be true. If you really want to be brave enough to try it. Because he even said, hey, in this world there will be trials and tribulations, but be of good cheer, I've overcome this world. So I don't even want to go a season or a period without him. But I know I cannot weather an eternity. I cannot fathom or attempt. How would I even go about starting that without him? The one who met the conditions of God for the payment of your sins now offers you forgiveness on the basis of his grace. He met all of the conditions. He checked all the boxes. He did not have the sin nature like you and I. For he did not detract his deity, but he added humanity while retaining his immensely divine nature. Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven, coming for you and for me. That's the message of Christmas, church. That's the beauty of this season. He brings with him the amazing gifts of grace and the amazing gift of his truth. That by it, you could be set free. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. Prepare your hearts to just spend some time with the Lord this morning. You're welcome to do that in your seat. You're welcome to do that at this altar. I believe that there's power.
not in these steps, but I believe that there is power in an act of faith as you align yourself to God and say, Lord, I'm gonna choose to believe. I'm gonna demonstrate that I'm coming into a new thought process, a new reality. I'm gonna rest in you. So I invite you to respond and you make a choice wherever you wanna do that. I came across this and I was just contemplating the reality of it, removing names and not considering the, the actual details, but two teenagers met while they were in high school and they fell in love with each other. All throughout high school, they dated. And after high school, naturally, they were married. They started having kids, building a life together. Well, four years later, there the wife stood in her kitchen with two kids at her feet, piles of dishes in the sink and piles of dirty diapers in the corner. Tears were flowing down her eyes and frustration, regret, all of that was bubbling inside of her, confusion. So she takes off her apron and she leaves the house. Later that night, she called home, to which her young husband answered the phone, understandably very worried about her, but also at the same time angry and frustrated. Why is she doing this? Where is she? So he asks her, where are you? Concern and anger fighting to take control over his voice. Ignoring him completely, she just asks, how are the kids? Well, if you mean, have they eaten? Yes, they have. I fed them. I've even put them to bed, they're bathed, everything's fine. Where are you? What are you doing? She hangs up the phone. But that wasn't the last time she would call home. In fact, she called home several times over the next couple of months, almost every single week. And each time her husband would tell her that the children were well, that the grandparents were stepping in and helping out and, and that he was doing everything to keep the house well and he was taking care of the kids and he would tell her, hey honey, I love you, I miss you, I love you dear. And he would tell her how much the kids missed her and how much they were asking for her and he would plead her to come home every time she called. And then he would try to find out where she was. And every time, when that question came, where are you? She'd hang up the phone. Finally, unable to tolerate it any further, months down the road, this young husband empties out his savings, hires a private investigator to go find his wife. He's exhausted, he's tired, he, he can't do this without her. The kids are yearning for their mother. He empties his account and that choice pays off. For the investigator tracked her down to a hotel in a far Midwest city. He goes to his in-laws and says, please, please, just lend me some money. I've emptied out the bank account. I need some funds. I need to go to her. He books a plane ticket and he flies out, gets in a, uh, a taxi and makes his way to the hotel, palm sweating, anxiety completely overtaking him. Anticipation to see his wife. He's rehearsed a whole set of speeches. Where and how and what am I going to say? What am I going to say first? And he's prepared everything as he goes up the steps and he knocks on that door, sweat pouring down his face. She opens the door. And when he sees her face, 
Everything he's rehearsed, everything he, he's talked about in his mind and he's prepared, he was going to say to her, he completely throws it out the window. He forgets about it and he says, we love you. Please come home. To which that woman embraces her husband and falls apart in his arms and they go home together. One evening, weeks later, as they're in the living room, the kids are asleep. He musters up the courage to ask him the question that has been plaguing him all of these months. Why wouldn't you come home? Honey, why wouldn't you come home? Why, when I repeatedly told you that I loved you and I missed you, why didn't you come home? Because, she said with deep simplicity, before those were only words, but then you came. Church, Jesus came. He personally comes to each and every one of us. He could have announced his great plan from the comforts of heaven. He could have made the rocks proclaim the plan of salvation. He could have caused a donkey like he did with Balaam to declare the wonders of God and that would have been okay if he chose to. But he didn't leave it up to words. Jesus came. He came as a baby born in a manger. He came not standing off in the distance, but he came personally in the flesh. He was real. He is here. He identifies with you. He is offering you his grace. He's personally reaching out to you. My question is, will you come to him? I don't know how you need to answer that question today. I don't know how you need to assess your life and your heart and what you have been doing or how you have been relating to him. But I believe each and every one of us need to take some time with that question. Will I come to him? Will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Lord, I invite your Holy Spirit to speak into every heart this morning. Lord, you came in the flesh. You made your home in our neighborhood that we may have relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you would right now speak to hearts to recalibrate their lives, their hopes, their desires, that you would review their actions and their habits, their activities. Lord, I declare all of it, Lord Jesus. History, this very moment, Lord God, a new opportunity that you would speak to them what they need to do and how they need to respond. Who needs to hear this message? What must they do? How must their lives be realigned and orchestrated to accommodate the fact that you came. That if we open up our doors and we look out, 
there you are, Jesus. Hear from me. Lord, if there's any man or woman today in this place that have never yet said, Lord, I want you in my life. I need to experience the gift of your grace that forgives me for all of my brokenness. All of the sins and issues that I've committed and perpetrated and continue to do so. I need you to make me new, Jesus. If that's you today, I want you to respond by simply inviting him into your life. It can start with the prayer, but it's going to take more than that. It's going to take a relationship. He's put his tent in your backyard. He wants to have communion, relationship, conversation. He wants to impact. He wants to spend time with you. So don't just relegate it to a prayer here today, but invite him into your life. Make space in your home for him in your activities, in your dreams and your pursuits. Give him room. But start with the prayer. Say, Jesus, I recognize that I'm a sinner in need of your grace. I believe that you are the Son of God God in the flesh who dwelt among us that you died on a cross but rose from the grave I want to align my life with you change me help me to live for you amen Amen. I invite you to just spend some moments in prayer. Commit things to God. If you want prayer partners to come alongside you and encourage you. Yeah, God will take care of my need, but I need somebody with skin on right now. I invite you to come to this altar and we'll pray for you. May the love of God the grace of our Lord, the fellowship and empowerment of the Holy Spirit be with you as you go from this place. In Jesus' mighty name.